Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. All right, if you have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. One of the great difficulties of being a pastor is I have many, many favorite chapters, many, many favorite verses. And once again, we're in one of those Uh, which is one of my favorites, John chapter 10. Thank you, Heinz, for doing such a great job last Sunday and kicking us off with a beautiful picture of Jesus as our good shepherd and the door of eternal life. And so we're going to continue this morning from verse 22 to 42, chapter 10. Here we go. We're going to read it, and then uh, I will pray. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I think John, who's writing this, is saying this with a lot of irony. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for good work that we are going to stone you, Thanks, by the way. But for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. (laughs) Can you see that they actually knew? Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now, just so you know, verses 34 to 36, I'm not going to deal with this morning because it's a whole message on its own. If you'd like to know what's going on here, see Desiring God. John Piper does an outstanding commentary on it. But actually what's happening here is it's a bit of a diversion tactic. You can imagine the Jews are standing ready with stones in their hands, and Jesus uses this argument as a diversion tactic. It's interesting. You can read it for yourself. Verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that they may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. It's part of the diversion tactics so that he can get away. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. 
and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that the word will last forever, that your word is a sharp two-edged sword, piercing, shaping, and changing us, transforming us. We don't want to just be hearers, we want to be doers. And so we thank you that the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Throughout history, many people have rejected Jesus because of bad experiences with religious people. You might be here this morning, you might, that might be part of your story. You, know, you, you reject Jesus because of a really bad experience with a spiritual leader. Well, we're in very good company because Jesus also had bad experiences with religious people. In fact, they end up trying to crucify him on multiple occasions, and eventually they get it right. The bottom line is people will let us down, but Jesus doesn't. We are to look to him. And no matter how many times he tells them, they still keep asking the question. Look again at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him. I wondered what this looked like. Was it like a scrum? Was it like in a corner they trapped him? The Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I've told you and you do not believe. The works that I do, so not only have I told you, but also the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And he was appealing to their law because on the basis of two or three witnesses, and Jesus is saying, listen, the greatest witness is my Father who's bearing witness to me through my works. And at this particular point, Jesus has already shared four of the big seven I am statements. He's told them in no uncertain terms, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Listen, what he's doing here is phenomenal. It's like walking into an English pub and standing up in an English pub. It's got nothing to do with that, by the way, but just hear me out. And it's like walking into an English pub and saying, I need 11 people on this side, and then I need another team with another 11 people. And then we're going to have 11 aside, and then we're going to have two goals on each side, and then we're going to have one ball and one ref. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? In an English pub. Of course you're going to know what we're talking about. And it's like that for Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. Does anybody know what he's talking about? Of course the Jews know what he's talking about. This is that they lived in this reality. This was their narrative. This was their history. Of course they know who Jesus is. And so it shouldn't surprise us that if they rejected him and if they mistreated him for being a bearer of truth, we might experience something like that. If, if they rejected the master, they will reject the servants of the master. And so we're in good company. Human nature has not changed much. But that's the background of what's going on. There is this rejection and there is this unbelief. But the rest of the text actually is an extremely encouraging text because it clearly teaches us that there will be those who believe, and not only will they believe, but they will be kept. God will keep his sheep. 
This is one of the strongest texts in all of Scripture that teach about the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the sheep. Let's not change the analogy. The analogy is that we are sheep and we can confidently say here this morning that if we are one of God's sheep, he will keep us. Which then begs the question, who are God's sheep? And we're going to just look at this under two main headings. Firstly, the privilege of being God's sheep. And secondly, the preservation of of God's sheep. This text teaches both the privilege of being a sheep, of being a saint, of being a Christian, and then secondly, how we are kept, the preservation of God's sheep. So firstly, the privilege. And the privilege is highlighted firstly by a contrast. The text shows us the contrast of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are unbelieving, and they reveal that they're not God's sheep by virtue of their unbelief. That is the characteristic. The characteristic of those who are not God's sheep is that they remain unbelieving. Therefore, if that's the contrast, the characteristic of God's sheep is that they believe. How do you know if you're, if you're a part of God's sheep? Well, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? They don't believe, and so they're not his sheep. And if you do believe, then you are his sheep. Have a look at it again closely at verse 25 and verse 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. He's revealed himself, and yet there's still unbelief. Why? Well, he goes on. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And here it is. But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. Now, the order here is rather revealing and startling in many ways. Jesus says it plainly. This isn't man's word. This is God's word. Verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Sheep. You would, you would think from a human perspective that he would have said it the other way around. It's kind of like how we normally talk. And, and the opposite would be sound something like this. Well, because you do not believe, therefore you are not my sheep. But that's not what the text says. It's not what Jesus says. It's often our experience, though. We experience salvation that way. You know, when you and I became Christians, it's because... We put our faith in Christ, and then we get adopted into his family, and we are saved. So we are saved by faith, but what's the reason for our saving faith? And this tells us the reason for our saving faith. The reason for our saving faith is because we are among his sheep. Now, we're in the deep end of theological truth here, because this is a text about God's election, God's saving plan. And some people struggle with this concept of God's election from before the foundations of the world. And it's not just written in a few places, it's actually all over the Bible about a Lamb's book in Revelation where names have been written, again, from before the foundation of the world. And Jesus is very clear here that the reason there is unbelief is because they are not among the sheep. And then the reason that there is belief is because you are among the sheep. 
Let's let Charles Spurgeon weigh in on this because there are some objections. Spurgeon says this, some say it's unfair for God to choose some and leave others. Now I will ask you one question. Is there any of you here who wishes to be holy, who wishes to be regenerate, saved, to leave off sin and walk in holiness? Yes, there is, says someone. I do. Then God has elected you. But another says, no, I don't want to be holy. I don't want to give up my lusts and vices. Why should you grumble then that God has not elected you? For if you were elected, you would not like it according to your own confession. This is a doctrine that many people don't like. But the question is not, do we like it? The question is, does God teach it? Is this in the Bible or isn't it? Whether I like it or not is not really the, the measure of truth, is it? No, no, of course not. The measure of truth is, is it taught in Scripture? Has God spoken these things? It was spoken even earlier in the chapter. We saw it in chapters 1 about those who receive Christ, who are born again, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but born of God. We saw it in chapter 3 about being born again of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. It's all over the text. It's in chapter 6 as well, and there it is in chapter 10. But we also see it in chapter, uh, verse 16, a little few verses back, where Jesus said this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And so the, the good shepherd comes to the Jews. He comes to the Jews. He comes to this fold, the flock of Judaism, and, and there are some sheep there. Because Paul becomes one, and Peter becomes one, and, and there are many. The early church were, were predominantly Jewish converts who were among the sheep. But here's the good news. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that are outside of the walls of Jerusalem, that, that are among the nations. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and here's the good news. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There is not two peoples of God. There is not Jews who are the people of God and then Gentiles who are kind of an engrafted second-rate B team. No, no. There is one flock, one shepherd. And so how is it that we come to faith? Well, we come to faith because of a divine calling. They will listen to my voice. It said in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is not a text on how to hear the voice of God. As a Christian, this is your testimony. This is how you became a Christian. How you became a Christian was you heard the voice of the preacher. You heard the voice of the Spirit through the testimony, through the Word of God. And you came. And why did you come? Well, you came because you were a sheep. This is the moment of your conversion. The moment of your conversion is that you came to Christ. Why did you come? Because he called my name. He knew me by name. 
He chose me by name. Why me? Exactly. No reason other than he loved us first. We love him because he first loved us. There is a mystery, no doubt. But God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are above our thoughts. But that's not all we see in this text. We could go on for hours, and I'm happy to have those conversations. But there's more here, more than just the privilege of being God's sheep. We see that God keeps his sheep, the preservation of God's sheep. Look what he does for them. Verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, there it is, he's given them. The sheep, he's given them. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And so the question is, if if the sheep have been called... The analogy is that the shepherd walks in into a field and there's just all sorts of sheep and the, the, the shepherd walks among them and he calls them and he calls and, and, and his sheep know his voice. And they come and they gather around the shepherd and then he keeps them and he nurtures them and he looks after them. How do we know this? Well, there are three things that we see here. Firstly, the permanence of God's keeping. How long will God keep his sheep? Well, the text tells us forever. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. This isn't a temporary life. This is a new creation. We are born again of incorruptible seed. This isn't corruptible. This isn't like God making mistakes. The permanence here of it is that it is eternal. There's not much to miss here, right? How long is eternal life? Exactly. It's eternal. This isn't temporary life. This isn't only if you abide alive. This is eternal life. Jesus is not mincing his words. He is clear that this eternal life is a gift that is permanent. God does not make mistakes. He finishes what he starts. And if someone does wander off, Then what happens? Well, we know that he's a good shepherd. And there are other verses that tell us that he leaves the 99 because one of his sheep is doing silly things, and so the sheep has wandered off. Have you guys seen that thing recently of the sheep that that jumps in the ditch? It's classic, isn't it? I mean, it's and then he frees it from the ditch. This big, woolly, chubby lamb jumps in the ditch, feels like it was an illustration. For me. And he's wedged in the ditch, and then the good shepherd lifts him out of the ditch, and then the sheep's all like springy and happy, and then he jumps straight back in <laughs> to the ditch, and he gets stuck again. Because he goes after them. Why does he go off? Why does he leave the 99 and go after the one? Well, because they're sheep. They're his children. God doesn't abandon his children. He's a good father, he's a good shepherd. And now we all know people in our families and maybe in our workplaces and we think, well, you know, I grew up with this guy and he said he was a Christian, but now, geez, he's not a Christian, so what are you saying? Are you saying that 
That, that, that people can't lose their salvation because, you know, I know this guy, I grew up with this guy and he was, a, you know, he was one of those holy rollers at the front of the church and, you know, hands raised and now, now he wants nothing to do with Christianity. I mean, are you, you know, like that's my experience and I know people like that too. So what do we to conclude? Well, the conclusion is one of two things. Either they were saved and now they're not saved. They, that, that God declared him justified, but then God made a mistake and now he's not justified. God made him righteous in Christ and now through his sinful ways and errors now that unrighteousness has taken over the righteousness of Christ. I think that would be antithetical to what we see in Scripture. Actually, the conclusion is they had a religious experience. They weren't truly saved and now the fruits are showing that they were never saved in the first place. So there's unhelpful language, and part of the unhelpful language is the language we've heard before, once saved, always saved. I don't think that's helpful language. I think better language is if saved, always saved. And that's what we see in the text. It's not like, well, once upon a time I gave my life to Jesus and therefore I've got a ticket and now I can live however I like. No, no, you've just shown me that you haven't truly been saved. God's word is true. There's a permanence here. Romans 8 verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, there's the voice, and those whom he called, he also justified, justification, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The text doesn't say some of those he justified, he glorified, like some got away. No, no, all those whom he called, he justified, and all those whom he justified, he glorifies. They make it, and they get saved by grace, and they make it by grace. The permanence of God's keeping is clear. Secondly, the promise of God's keeping. Jesus makes two great promises here in verse 28. He says, they will never perish. And secondly, no one will snatch them out of my hand. The perishing here is an eternal perishing. It's the John 3.16, that if you believe, you will not perish. He's talking about the, the condemnation of, of, of hell, eternal separation from God. What a promise this is. They will never perish. This is such good news. That even though I do stumble, and even though I might make falls, and even though I might not always be faithful, God will keep me. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Secondly, none will snatch us out of his hand. No one. What does the no one refer to? Well, I think it refers back to verse 12, the wolf who sneaks in. So even the wolf will not be able to snatch us. And maybe even the thieves and robbers of verse 1 and 8. But essentially, it means anything. No one means no one, including you. Some people object and say, well, you know, I, know, I know no one else can snatch me out of God's hand, but what happens if I decide to climb out of God's hand? Well, what part of no one don't you understand? Because no one includes you. Nothing in all of creation, Romans 8, can separate us 
from the love of God in Christ. And when people do walk away, here's what happens. 1 John 2 verse 19. Here's an example. John saying, they went out from us. Not just for a stroll. Look what he says. They went out. They left the faith, but they were not of us. They were in the community. They were there waving their hands. They were there serving. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Paul Washer says this, The evidence that you, are tr- that you truly repented long ago when you said you did is because you are still repenting now. The evidence that you believed a long time ago is that you are still believing now and in greater and greater degrees. Finally, the power of God's keeping. Notice that Jesus brings in his father. Verse 29. Once again, the father's not only bearing witness to his works, but the father and him are one. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. He appeals to the omnipotence of his father. It's not as if Jesus can't keep us, but his point here is that we're on the same team. This is team trinity that is going to hold us fast. The son is going to hold us. The father is going to hold us. And therefore, none can separate us from the love of God. They share the same nature. They share the same essence. They share the same substance. And therefore, they are working together to accomplish the same goal. He will hold us fast. Let me conclude with a story and then two applications. Many, many years ago, there was a Scottish preacher who was well-known to his community and well-loved by his church. Everybody knew that the Scottish preacher was theologically sound and he was a loving shepherd. And one of his members was, was dying at home. And so he went to the house to visit. And she was dying of illness, but also old age. And so he walked into the crowded room of people and they made way for the minister. And he stood at the end of the bed and he said, Mary, my dear, I know that you are tired and weary and the Lord is waiting and willing to take you into his loving arms. And I'm here to tell you that none of us can fathom what that is like, but it will be wonderful. And then he paused for a moment because she said nothing. And then he thought of another way to approach her. And he said to her, now tell me, Mary, what would you say if at the last minute, right before you died, the Lord suddenly let you go? And you lost hold of him, and he lost hold of you, and you perished. And all the people in the room looked at each other and wondered, has our minister lost his mind? And then eventually Mary spoke up and said, oh, dear minister, that will never happen. And you know better than this. And the minister said, well, how can you say that? And she said, he, God, would lose far more than I would. And the minister said, well, that's a bit arrogant. What do you mean? Please tell me what you mean. And she said, well, I would lose my soul, yes, but he would lose his honor. 
And this is what is at stake with the perseverance of the saints, with God's ability to keep his sheep. This isn't just some fluffy kind of theological conundrum. No, no, this is about the honor of God. Can he keep his sheep? Can he glorify those whom he justifies? Of course he can. Because he's greater than all. And his honor is at stake. This is about the honor of God, the glory of God. And so two thoughts in conclusion. One is that this is a message of assurance, not insurance. This isn't like, well, I took out a policy with God, and now I can just do whatever I like. That's not salvation. This is about a life of privilege that he chose me, not because of my works, not because of my deeds, but simply because of grace. And that assurance doesn't lead to licentiousness. It leads to holiness. Not perfection, but a desire for godliness. This is about assurance, not insurance. And secondly, this is about gratitude, not attitude. We're not those who are like, okay, cool. We're the chosen ones. No. That's not the attitude. It's true, but it's about humility. That if this is true, then I'm, a, I'm so humbled, I'm humbled to the dust. And, and like the Puritans say, when we come to God with this understanding, friends, hear me, when we come to God with this truth in us, we are like beggars before God with no hands. Because it's his mercy. And you might be here this morning thinking, well, how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile God's sovereignty in election? And how do we reconcile man's responsibility? You've got to live a certain way. Well, Charles Spurgeon says, I don't need to reconcile friends. Because God's, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are friends. God will sort that out. We yield to his teaching. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for you to do a mighty work in our hearts, not just of information, but of transformation. We want to be changed by your word. And I pray for these two things, for assurance and for gratitude. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, born of the Spirit, sealed, sealed by the Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for your justifying work. And all those whom you justify, you will glorify. Lord, we are so grateful and so thankful that you will hold us. You will hold us and you will never let us go. That nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because God, you are omnipotent. There is no evil. There is no circumstance. There is no political power. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Lord, we thank you for this incredible truth that you will hold us, 
that what you give us is eternal life and we will never perish. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that you'd fill our hearts this morning with gratitude. That we would be included among the sheep. What love is this? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace.